This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, farming, gardening, and food. My guest on this segment of Digging in the Dirt today is Edwina Vangal. In 2013, she founded the Perfect Earth Project, promoting toxic-free lawns and landscapes for the health of people, their pets, and the planet. Edwina is here today to talk to me about her latest project coming out of the Perfect Earth Project, which is called Two-Thirds for the Birds. It's an initiative launched by this... You've touched on a lot of things there, Kevin, so it's sort of (laughs) where to begin, but yes, it would be wonderful for everyone to stop using any kind of an insect attractor. They really are not effective in reducing your mosquito populations because they, like you said, they attract everything and they bring them all to you. And the other thing is that you'd probably be better off adjusting your watering. A lot of mosquito populations are related antics to your watering schedule. People generally water too often and their landscape never has a chance to dry out. So that's that's healthy tick and mosquito habitat. Yeah, I also believe in emptying any standing water you find. You just go around the yard and make it a habit to look for the standing water. There's lots of little places that can- There, there sure are, but then you should create one, which is a bird bath, because what perfect earth and two thirds for the birds promote is creating habitat. So we're saying plant two plants for every three would be native. And this is like looking forward, don't look back. I don't care what you've got as long as it's not invasive. Invasive should be removed. But just start when you buy plants, if two out of three are native, you're really gonna be making a big difference. But then um, habitat is food, shelter, and water. So native plants provide food and shelter. And then you could provide a little bit of water, but yeah, you should probably wash it out every couple of days so you don't get mosquito populations. That's what birds, I do. Yeah. In my bird baths, they flap around so much they kind of empty it. So, yeah, my find mine empty all the time, you know, and yeah. I just refill it. So yeah. yeah. What do you think of those mosquito dunks that, that they say that are uh, you know harmless to everything but mosquitoes? Well I, I use them in my rain barrels because I collect rainwater mm-hmm. to use on my garden. They are not harmful. They're BT, but why mess up the bird bath water because they're kind of funky and I'm sure they don't hurt. But if I'm going to clean out the bird bath every couple of days anyway, that's all I need to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those, so, the yeah. dunks aren't cheap too. Like no, you would be not. washing them and throwing them. The birds would like just use them up. Sure. So I like this idea because I like, just like I like the pollinator pathway people, because I think it's not something that you're, you have to join, you know, you can learn from someone like yourself and go about doing it. You know, it's an individual commitment. So you, you just say, I'm going to turn my yard into a place for birds and insects. And, and as Doug Tallamy says, it's more like a, a, you know, your own private extension of a national park we can't we can't nationalize everything and make it a park so why not all of us individuals make parks out of our yards and increasingly the the environmental um, movement the, the big environmental organizations are really starting to recognize the power of the individual property owner and how we provide the infill so if they're buying and preserving conservation lands we're going to connect them together. We're going to create quarters and the pollinator pathway is doing that. 
And everybody can do that. It doesn't matter how small your property is. You're making a difference. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, it's great stuff. So let's jump in here about uh, what kind of plants and bushes do we plant? Well, there's there's an old, you know what they call it, an old nut or whatever of wisdom, right plant, right place, which as a as an early and, and exuberant gardener for much of my career, I wanted to grow all the wrong stuff in a way. The things that were hard, the things that were weird, the things that were, you know, unusual. And now I'm just past that so much because now it's really right plant, right place. If you choose a plant that evolved in the place or is or genetically attuned to the kind of soil you have, the kind of conditions you have, well, that means it was here or someplace like it well before humans. It was not getting fertilized. It wasn't getting watered. It wasn't getting sprayed. It was doing just great. And that can happen on your property too. That's native plants, basically. Yeah, and where, where are we going to find these native plants? I don't think most nurseries have them. or the native, I think some of them are starting to get the wind that everybody wants them. But generally, where do we find them and what do we ask for? Well, it is a challenge. On the on the Two Thirds for the Birds website, we have a resource page with lots of ideas about where to find them. Audubon has a native plant database that is really great, and they recommend sources that are by zip code. Uh, but still, you know, it, there's not enough, and so the best sources are are, are online now. You can Google. And find them. There's a place called Izel, I Z E L. There's Prairie Moon, um, uh, quite a few that have. They sell them in as plugs. They're small, but that makes them. You can buy a lot of plants cheap. Right. So, but then like locally, you know, Martyrs has some. Oh, a really good local thing is the Rewild program, Long Island Rewild, and also Limpy, the Long Island Native Plant Initiative. They have a they have a native plant sale. Yeah, I've been there. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. really they, strange and, plants. <laughs> yeah, and well, they're not. They, they might seem strange because they're new to many of us, but they've been here a long time. Yeah, yeah, beyonds. yeah. And and they'll tend to grow the ones that that are reliable. You know, there there are plenty of native plants that are not so easy to grow. So what you want is deer proof and reliable, and that ends up being a fairly small list. Mm -hmm. So I, I I really encourage people to have at least part of their property protected from deer, because the deer are sadly eating most of our wildflowers. Everything, yeah. Yeah, so that that's causing a problem for the pollinators because they just don't have enough food without right. those wildflowers. They mow it down real quick. Mm -hmm. So what I mean, just as an aside, what is there any kind of? Uh, I find the deer can levitate. <laughs> so uh, how do you keep deer out? I mean, is there a, a secret thing you have? You know, want to fill us in? Well, it is kind of it's it's not secret, but it is not well known, and it's something that I've worked on developing and experimenting with through the years. So I use two fences. I use an outer fence. Um, That's what I do. That is about four to five feet high. I like something that has large openings, so foxes and turtles and everything else can still pass through my property, but just small enough that a fawn can get in. The deer still stick their heads through, so <laughs> there's about six inches inside the fences. <laughs> so I put grasses and things there, and then about four or five feet 
inside of that. I've stopped using actually a second fence because I realized the part that is necessary is the top of the fence. So I just use rebar and rope. Right. And that way, because I was having problem with the two fence thing, is that I, maintaining between the fences was problem. But now with the rebar and rope, which does just as well, it's working. Right. I think it's about purchase for them to jump. If there's if they have yeah. the two to jump, they can't. It's too far to go, and that's what de- deters them. Yeah, and they're and they're afraid to, I guess, trip on that second one. Exactly. Break an ankle would be disastrous <clears throat> for a deer. Yeah, ex- exactly, exactly. But is there any one plant that you uh, you like a lot that you planted and you found good results? Well, depends on what your goals are. So, in terms of just like all around bomber shrub to grow that the deer don't eat is is bayberry you know and everybody thinks oh that's boring but actually when grown in a garden it's quite beautiful and um and nothing bothers the deer do not eat it so i use that outside my fence you said bayberry Uh, bayberry Mm, wow mirica pennsylvanica (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and it's it's a lovely plant they can get quite large but you can keep them small if you wish and they're just, they're sort of semi-evergreen, especially as winters get warmer. They don't drop their leaves until late-ish. And they have beautiful um, blueberries. Mm-hmm. But all of the viburnums, the American viburnums, are wonderful plants. Uh, people ask me about nativars, which is, a, which is like the selections that nurseries sell that are named, and whether or not they're still a good idea. So I instantly referred to Doug Ptolemy for my absolute scientific answer. And he said, just plant it. <laughs> you know, he said some of them may be better than others. The time it would take to do the research, if it's what you can get, plant it. If you can get the straight native, great, plant both, you know, <laughs> plant everything. Um, the more, the better. What about staggering them so that you have blooming plants? I'm talking for bugs and for the birds, that staggering them so that they're blooming at different times. I've read, read that the, some people try to you know go on that quest. Do you, do you have that in mind too when you're talking about oh, landscapes? Yeah, and that's also an aesthetic. It's, yes. that, that pleases people as well as pollinators. So sure, it's, it's, sure. It, you know, which we always used to do before <clears throat> we were taking um environment into account. And now they're getting better science on that too. And they suggest that at any given time, except of course the dead of winter, if you can have three different plants in bloom, you're likely to um, to be meeting the needs of a very broad range of pollinators. You want three different plants and in total, no less than I think it's like 27 different blooming plants so that you for biodiversity cool yeah the, uh, last year i started planting borage and boy does that that sticks around a long time the, the <laughs> bees love borage and it's got the, these great little purple flowers yeah it's not native and it's super invasive it is <laughs> you don't like it? it out for years to come i put it in pots <laughs> oh good idea and i don't know how much it attracts the, the native bees because when i talk about bees I am talking about native bees, not honeybees. Honeybees are not yeah, native. I, I don't see honeybees on it. I see, you know, oh, the little bumblebees. Like, ah, I, I got a lot of more wasps lately too. So that's yeah, good. oh, that's awesome. fantastic. Yeah. I do like to raise people's awareness about the, the, the distinction that 
honeybees are not native and they can in some cases where the foraging is limited, like where deer have really eaten all the flowers, the honeybees can tend to outcompete the native bees. So, mm -hmm. And why is that important? Well, native bees are actually the ones that are responsible for far, far more of our pollination than honeybees. Honeybees came as sort of a package deal from Europe with the plants that they pollinate. So that like they pollinate orchard type, you know, fruits and nuts. And they came from the same place where the bees came from. So they're, they're a, they, they work together, but the honeybees are generalists. So they'll, they'll go to a lot of other plants, but there's a lot of our native flowers, which cannot be pollinated by a honeybee. And it requires a specialist to be. Right. That's what Talami points out heavily is that you need indigenous for insects that are indigenous so that they can work together. Nature is a bunch of systems working together. They're, and and they're, the, the, once you go down this path, this is this garden path, <laughs> yeah. you can get pretty obsessed. It's it's like I try to make the like the garden gate, the gateway drug. Right. Um, I try to make that like accessible for people sure like, yeah what are easy things that you can do to get started and, well, the, and then you're off right the state of new york really did me a dirty i i bought some plants from them and they're not they're invasive and they are unbelievably invasive i have autumn olive on my property and yeah. i want i gotta personally ask you what do i do to get rid of it it is so prolific is spreading everywhere and I want to stop it, you know? So it's, uh, they have the, I guess the birds really do like the the little berries that they come up with and they're pooping them all over the property and they're, exactly. it's growing everywhere. And even when I cut it back, it becomes better. I mean, it becomes yeah. stronger, you know? Yeah. So what do um, I do? You could do um, basically very frequent mowings if if the property is open to that you know it is but these are big bushes some of them now uh well the first thing yeah so the 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 thing you don't want to hear which is what you need to do is you got to pull them out so you'd get like um a skid steer or something tie rope on it yank it out just if they're big just yank yeah, them are. out there and that's it's a big job and then but you could chip them and put the chips back down okay um it's going to take years then for all the seed to stop sprouting. Mm -hmm. And that would require, but when they're small, they're easy to pull out sure. and, or mow. I've got both. <laughs> yeah. But that, or you could, you can, it's harder if you cut them to the ground and then have to keep cutting the sprouts off every year. So I, I got a problem. So that's why I'm asking. So you might get Thank a you. guy with a backhoe in for a day. Yeah. And just yank them. Yank them out. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. Okay, yeah. thank you. I know, isn't it crazy that the state used to sell them as as like roadside and and property reforestation? Yeah, I got them for a buck a piece, and I put in a, a along a driveway because I'm buying. I was buying into a hedge, you know, the hedge mentality of of England. You know, the hedge groves are good for yeah, the birds. Sure, yeah. I was buying into that, but it, it it they just spread too much. You know, they're popping up yes. all over the place. You know, well, we're all learning as autumn well. olive folks stay away. They won't sell them anymore, but it is a no. seriously invasive species to stay yeah, away from they're those. illegal for a good reason but like now there are new ones coming and some plants this olive was not one like that they were invasive from the get-go but like miscanthus and butterfly bush are two that are now starting to appear really um, aggressively in the wild and outpacing some of our more important uh, plants 
And people think that they're doing a wonderful thing by planting butterfly bush, but actually it only provides nectar. So that's like just candy and right. it doesn't do the rest of the meal. And if it starts to take over um, places where real butterfly habitat should exist, like if, if you're on the train back to the city, you, at the right time, you'll see butterfly bush just completely lining the sides of the tracks. And so we ask people not to buy it or plant it. Mm -hmm. I don't know that every single cultivar is is at the point where it's escaping, but because sometimes plants will be perfectly well behaved. You know, mm -hmm. they'll just be great in your garden. And it takes, we usually see about 20 years. And so miscanthus, the, this Chinese feather reed grass or whatever they call it, is doing that now too. Wow. I know it's a problem. We have to really be careful. And explain why that's a problem. Because again, just, just to emphasize that it's the indigenous bugs and, and, and animals that need indigenous plants, correct? Correct. And that some of these plants that have come here don't have any control mechanisms like baked into the system. So there's nothing to eat it. And it used to be a positive thing that nurseries sold you something that nothing eats. And now we realize, oh, what does that mean? Um, that means no food for anything but people. Right. I mean, and that's the thing we don't do well is we don't share in our landscapes because we're using the same mindset that we use in our vegetable garden for our for our enjoyment garden. And we got to share. For the look. What, <laughs> yeah, that's what, so Doug Talby's been really wonderful with his book on oaks. Yeah, white um, oaks is his favorite tree. Right, about how many different species those trees serve. And where people used to think of oaks is like, well, I'm not planting an oak. Everything eats an oak. Like, like it's like poor oaks, you know, they're just, Oaks are just the most generous tree of all. They serve dinner, lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and it doesn't hurt them. They evolved to do that. That's, yeah, 20%, isn't that great? Yeah, any, any tree or shrub can lose 20% of its leaf surface at any given time and be fine. And by the time you reach now, mid-August, those leaves are done doing what they need to do. So anybody out there, if you're starting to see those webworms on the on the trees on the side of the road, harmless, totally harmless, and quite beneficial as bird food. Right, they will eat all of them. Yeah, we're yeah. talking to Edwina Vangal of the Perfect Earth Project and her new efforts with Two Thirds for the Birds, which you can tell is uh, someplace we all should be going if you're going to plant stuff. I think you plant local stuff that, that helps every uh, not only the animals but the birds and the and the insects. You know, speaking of which, I mean, uh, two things I want to talk about, and one is what if you live in suburbia where there's the regulations about ripping up your lawn and planting wild and willy-nilly you know all kinds making it more wild you know what do you what do you recommend with people you start putting in pathways and and building around that and making it look attractive so that you can get away with it because there is a lot of regulations in suburbia there yes people are starting to challenge them but that takes a little bit longer and might raise some ire in your neighborhood but i think you'll find that more people have more companions in that in their efforts but just to make it maybe appear you want to make it look intentional. Number one, a wildflower front yard can look like a garden, totally look like a garden. But if your HOA is saying it can only be lawn, then you might want to restrict how big that garden is. And we call it a beauty strip so that you mow 
as close to like really good lawn as you can bring yourself, you mow a frame around it and then you call it art, right? So that's your beauty strip along the street, maybe 10 feet of, of lawn and maybe up the sides so that people feel, oh, they didn't just like stop taking care of their place. But when you get a pollinator garden growing and you have pollinator plants in bloom and your front yard is just alive with butterflies, I just can't imagine how somebody's going to tell you that's bad. Yeah, you, that's my brother. He I he listened to my shows and and he said, I got to plant plants. I said, well, plant pollinator indigenous. He did. He planted. It's incredible now. And all the neighbors are always thinking, what, are you, what did you plant? You know, they want to know what it is so they can have it too. It's You're right. That's exactly what happens. Yeah. And so what in the wintertime, they look a little rangy. But at the same time, if you leave those set, the seed heads standing in the winter, you'll have birds that's their food sure so let's since we're over close to the subject let's talk about the lawn you know i had recently read that the common lawn is the most irrigated crop in america it's also probably the most sprayed for chemicals crop too i think that's in your literature and out west now they're paying homeowners to rip up lawns you think we're going to see the end of the lawn here with the, the two pressures that are happening the water drought and also the fact that people don't want chemicals anymore what's your thoughts on the lawn well it's one of the the great marketing success stories of post-war america is the lawn and the lawn chemicals and the lawn care that goes along with it it's a business model so it's fun for me to ask people to think about why. If you knew, you know, if you, and I'm going to tell you, so then you'll know that that lawn, if you're using traditional lawn chemicals, is really endangering your health, your children's health, your pet's health, and the health of your water supply and all the, the wildlife and the soil. So you know that and you say, well, oh, what's the proof? And I say, well, if there's even a slight chance, because there is more and more evidence that, that lawn chemicals cause autism and Alzheimer's, and um, we know about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, that was the Roundup case, and um, there's nervous disorder, system disorders, endocrine disruption, some, some serious repercussions. So even if that's just a chance of happening to you, you would say, I still prefer a blanket of military green like think about that like just why so because you can have a perfectly acceptable lawn the lawn has a role to play i have lawn i'm not saying get rid of every square inch of lawn because what else am i gonna you know play with my dog and my grandson and roll around and kick a ball and stuff but what about the lawn that you don't tend to walk on? So like how much lawn do you actually use? How much do you need to fulfill that function that only lawn can really do well? And then the two things are get rid of the rest and put it over to natives. And the other thing is change your practices on the lawn you keep. So stop using chemicals, start using proper watering, allow clover, mow high, leave the clippings, mulch mow and leave the clippings. Those are the really basic things. If your irrigation company comes in in the spring and sets your, your irrigation system and is gone for the rest of the summer, you are not doing the right thing with your water. 
And because that would, they, they tend to say, I mean, how could it be to have the same watering every, generally every other day to, throughout the season, no matter whose property, sun, shade, whatever. Most of the time you want to water as little as possible and as deep as possible. So we strongly recommend that people do not even begin watering until sometime in June. So your lawn roots are deep down there looking for the water. So when it starts getting hot, they're out of the sun and out of the heat. And they're away from the, and they're away from the, um, the bugs that will eat them. Frequent watering makes for fungal problems. You get a lot of fungus diseases. Fungicides are some of the most dangerous of the, the, uh, the lawn chemicals. So. Yeah. yeah, it's a big problem. Yeah, I'm happy so, to see them paying to rip them out out west. It's, like a, it's yeah. a victory. <laughs> yeah, well, even here, you know, the, the uh, Peconic Estuary Program, if you have a property that is in the Peconic Estuary watershed, they're giving people $500 to buy native plants. Cool. Yeah. Oh, so I took it. I oh, yeah, I bet. Oh, sure. It was so easy. Yeah. So we'd tell them where to go for that. This is a bonus. Well, I think it's it's Peconic. Just Google Peconic Estuary Project. No, Peconic Estuary Program, isn't it? Um, but if anybody needs that, we could I could look it up and send it to you. So Great. Well, yeah. you know, I'm a little ahead of you on the birds because I have birds all over my yard. I have a very, like I call it a secret garden. You know, I grow my tomatoes, my vegetables. And and at the same time, I started putting in, I put in an elderberry bush and I put in some black raspberries, you know, blackberries and stuff. And they're all gone. The, the, I let the birds eat them all. So I see a lot more of them, you know, like cat birds. Like I have, every time I go in the garden, my cat birds come around, they talk to me, you know, they hang out on the wire and they talk to me and I talk back at them. I, I, I really believe that they're all, they come when I go out there. So it's it's fun that I have cat birds and robins and blue jays and sparrows and finches and cardinals and morning doves and crows come around now and then. And then we have a hawk now because we have an abundance of rabbits. What's interesting in terms of the bird decline, the most damage to the bird population is us. Yes. And the reason is that we keep taking over their habitat because it's actually not the, the weird you know, varieties. It's not the unusual ones. It's the everyday songbirds. It's our backyard songbirds because our backyards were their habitat. And so we're taking over every year. Every time you see a new house go up, that was habitat for some songbird. And unless we try to replace as much as possible that the bird can live on, that, that bird's Population just got reduced. Yeah. Speaking to Edwina Van Gaal, The Perfect Earth Project and Two-Thirds for the Birds. If you had people listening and there's one thing you want them to do, what do you want them to do? Well, they could go on our 234birds.org website or the Perfect Earth website. It's on there, too. And read our resources page and our Getting Started section and sign up as a two-thirder. Your name is up there. I'm doing this. Other people can find you if, if they're in your vicinity and you can share information. It's all there. But other than that, make a commitment. Make a commitment to your place to do it no harm. Sounds good to me. Thank you so much, Edwina, for joining me. Thanks a lot, Kevin. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. 